Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Chris Grosso. Chris is a public speaker, writer, director of education at Toivo by Advocacy Unlimited, and author of Indie Spiritualist, A No-Bullshit Exploration of Spirituality, Everything Mind, What I've Learned About Hard Knocks, Spiritual Awakening, and the Mind-Blowing Truth of It All, and his next book, Dead Set on Living. He writes for Origin Magazine, Huffington Post, and Mantra Yoga and Health Magazine, and has spoken and performed at Wanderlust Festival, Celebrate Your Life, Yoga Journal Conference, Sedona World Wisdom Days, Kripalu, Sun Valley Wellness Festival, and more. Chris is passionate about his work with people who are in the process of healing or struggling with addictions of all kinds. He speaks and leads groups in detoxes, yoga studios, rehabs, youth centers, hospitals, conferences, and festivals worldwide. He is a member of the advisory board for Drugs Over Dinner and hosts the Indie Spiritualist podcast on Ram Dass's esteemed Be Here Now network. So with that, hello, Chris. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. As you're reading that, it's like, wow, man, I really need to cut that bio down. It's it's. It's I not mean, bad. these are no, these are things I do. Thank you for sharing it. But at the same time, it's like, I'm just some dude, you know. I just whatever. Like I like skateboarding and watching The Simpsons and dumb shit. So, anyways, <laughs> it's funny to just hear all that read back. You know, it, it's weird. Anyways. Thank yeah, you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Yeah, it's I, I want to talk a little bit about all that the skateboarding and the Simpsons side of your of your story. Um, and I you know, I've been listening to or been reading your latest book, Everything Mind, and really enjoying um, the down to earth approach that you offer. So Thank you. yeah, so before we start to talk about a little more, you know, deeply about your work and about spirituality from your perspective, I'd love to hear a little bit just about your story and kind of what led you to this path of teaching and writing. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, I, I, like a lot of other people, were kind of uh, was kind of thrust onto this path. It's not one I really chose to embark on. Um, for me, it was drugs and alcohol and uh, almost dying a few times. It kind of, wow. you know, set me in this place of either I need to get my shit together or I really am actually going to die. So uh, it was around 15 years ago, give or take, um, I had gone through my first detox and rehab. I was, um, uh, like 24, I think at the time. And I just finally hit a rock bottom, you know, at the age I had started experimenting, uh, my later job. than most. Yeah. I, well, actually a little bit later than a lot of my friends. They, they started around 13, 14. I oh, was wow. kind of, yeah, I was more 15, 16, 17. Um, but I made up for lost time quickly, you know, and it was the pot and alcohol very quickly turned into psychedelics and, uh, whatever else was around. And I was a musician playing in bands. So we were touring around and there was always different drugs being, uh, you know, or I was being exposed to them and happy to partake. Cause I really, I didn't like myself at all when I was younger, a lot of self-loathing. I used to self cut before I even touched alcohol and stuff. So anyways, it was around 24, you know, after this just continuous downward spiral, um, that ended up in that, that detox and, um, I went through that and I went through an inpatient, uh, rehabilitation program from there for about a month. And then I went into a sober living community and, wow. um, yeah. And then I just, I got myself back into school and that's where I met, um, an amazing professor who I'm, uh, humbled to call a friend today. She's like a mother to me and, uh, is still just, um, a huge influence in my life. But so she actually gave me Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now, you know, and that was the book. Like, 
I was living in Middletown, Connecticut at the time. I had a small little apartment and I had no interest in spirituality. Um, I didn't like reading, but I really trusted her, you know, and, and I was going through Wait, a you're a writer. Patch. You're a writer who didn't like reading at one time. Hated reading. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird because it's still weird for me to call myself a writer because I never formally took a writing class. I never even finished my associates. I didn't, you know, I didn't go to school for writing. And yet, yes, now I have the words bookworm. Uh, I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, that's awesome. Tattooed on my knuckles because my I'm just like my apartment is littered with books and uh, and it's all thanks to her. So, but it was really that book. I, I mean, I wish I had some exciting story, like, you know, I was out in the Himalayas or, <laughs> you know, I don't know, but no, literally that book changed my life. And from there, there was a great library in Middletown, Russell library. And, uh, that was like my second home. So I just started going there and devouring everything I could. It didn't matter what tradition it was from Buddhism, Hinduism, Vedanta, um, Zen, mystic Christianity, uh, general spirituality, whatever it was like, there was just a resonance of truth to most of it. Some of it, you know, I was like, uh, I don't know. It was a little too <laughs> woo woo for me, but Hey, teach their own. Uh, but I mean, so that's kind of what set me on the path. It's not that, you know, once I stepped on things were perfect because even after that, uh, the next several years I continued to experience relapses and, um, I had a couple of suicide attempts and ended up in psych hospitals and jail cells. And I mean, you know, one thing I tell people about the spiritual path I've learned is that if you're if you're really sincere about it and you're really doing the work and, and you're showing up and, and sifting through whatever you have inside of you. And in my case, there's a just a lot of wreckage in the past that was there and still some stuff will come up today that I Christ, I forgot all about from 20 years ago. But that's just part of it. So anyways, um a lot of it came up very quickly, very heavily. And, uh, and it was more than as no, that's not, I was gonna say more than I can handle, but it was more than I think I was willing to really sit with and work with at the time. So I turned back to drugs and alcohol and, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. And then, you know, I guess finally enough had been enough. I, I noticed the pattern of when I would go back to drugs and alcohol uh, it would be much more short lived each time because that, uh, I, I, I knew better, you know, it was like, I'm just masking this, like I'm prolonging what I'm going through. And, you know, there's a saying, I don't know who it's attributed to, but I really appreciate it. It's just simply the only way out is through. Hmm. And that's something I've had to learn and really apply in my own life. So, you know, there you have it in a nutshell. Um, and here I am a few books later alive you know, doing okay. <laughs> doing great. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I really respect about you is that, you know, you're not a, you're not a spiritual teacher that's, that's sort of remarking solely on this kind of like past, you know, dark time. And now you're sort of an enlightened being here, you know, sharing your, your, your insights from the top of the mountain. I, and, and the reason why I'm bringing this up, because I remember when I was watching the video of you at the ABC home, I guess it's mm-hmm. called that, um, yeah. that series that you were a part of there, you mentioned how even after you had started um, writing books and, and touring and teaching in this way, you had a relapse. And I, yeah. I, I thought that was really just a, a poignant reflection on the fact that, you know, you can be um, a really grounded spiritual teacher and still go through the shit, you know, and it's not as if yeah. you know, it's not as if they these these two um, uh, these two aspects of, of our experience can't be held in the same um, in the same frame, I guess. So do you want to remark on that a little bit on, on yeah. 
on just that relationship between you know your own continuing. Um, I mean, I don't know how recent it was because I don't know wh how, when that was videotaped. But just you know, those who those who are kind of struggling continuously with addiction while at the same time, f you know, having these moments of profound clarity in their spiritual practice. Yeah. Well, first of all, really well said and articulated on your end. So thank you for that. Um, it's, it's so important to me as it has been, I think it dates back to like 13 or 14 when I got, uh, interested in punk rock and hardcore music and underground or indie underground hip hop, like just the authenticity of that and how much it meant to me. It was like a really heart thing for me that has been deeply ingrained in me and in my life, you know, and it always will be. So regardless of the fact that I have some books written or that I speak at these events, I would never present something that I'm not, you know, it's always been very important for me to be transparent, to be true to myself. Again, that's something that hardcore music always used to talk about. Um, may still, I don't know a lot of the newer bands, but, um, you know, really be, be true and be authentic. And, so I am who I am. And I think part of that spiritual path is, is owning the fact that we're human beings, you know, just because you have these experiences of, um, awakening or minor enlightenment glimpses or, or whatever, it doesn't mean that life becomes perfect, you know? And just because I I've had a relapse, it doesn't mean that I am any less of a person because that happened. You know, that's part of what I live with on a daily basis. That's part of my struggle other people, everyone has their own thing. It's just, that's my thing. I, I probably, well, I have other things too, but that's like my big thing. I mean, big, because like I said earlier, it, it could inevitably take my life if I'm not careful. Right. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it's just, and that's the, that's the premise of the next book. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, promote that, but literally, you know, I'm sitting there and it's like, Christ, like it, it happened again. And, and, uh, and, and, and it ha I mean, I, I've known so many people that have experienced relapses over the course of the last year. I've known so many people over the course of my coming into recovery that have died. Um, it's a very tragic thing, but it's what inspired me to work on this new book that's coming out next year and explore the question, basically, why do we return to these self-harming, self-defeating behaviors when we know better? And not just in relation to drugs and alcohol. But I mean anything, whether it's, uh, you know, food, sex, shopping, gambling, um, eating unhealthy foods, um, literally anything that doesn't serve us, you know. So really exploring these questions and, and offering different meditations and practices that I've used. And, you know, after that experience, I, I'm very fortunate um, in my line of work and, and through speaking and doing my own podcast to have become friends with a lot of the great wisdom teachers of today. So I was able to turn to them and explore some of these questions with them and gain insights. And at the end of the day, it's not like I have an answer. There is no definitive answer. You know, there's as many answers are there as human beings on this planet. You know, we're each unique individuals. We each have our own unique set of circumstances, but there are some areas where we have some common ground. And, um, and that's where I try to, to put the pieces together and, and say, you know, well, all right. So maybe this can help you in this situation or that can help you in that situation. And, um, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but no, it uh, did. You, well, just to kind of push that a little further in terms yeah, of, of course. you know, you're mentioning your new book and you, you've done some research, uh, with, um, spiritual teachers and, and, and through your own experience regarding this question that you asked about why we return to, um, these old habits. And, 
and you know, even though the answer might be variable, can you give a little bit of the wisdom? You know, maybe giving away the pudding a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it's it's tough. It's really. First of all, it is like I said. It's very unique to each individual. Right. But I think the bottom line is that we're human beings and we experience a lot of pain. And for a lot of us, for most of us, especially I think in Western culture, we're not taught how to work with that pain skillfully. I know I certainly wasn't. Um, it's not taught in schools. I mean, it is refreshing to see that more frequently we're seeing meditation and yoga taught even in some elementary schools, but at high school levels, um, because those are the kinds of seeds that begin being planted at a younger age that, you know, can really help people. You know, we go to school and we're taught English and math and great stuff we need. But, um, I have a friend, Andrea Levine and her husband, Stephen, who passed away last year. Uh, they're the parents of Noah uh, Levine, excuse me, who, you know, is the Dharma Punks author, wonderful Buddhist teacher. And I remember speaking with them, uh, not for this book, but this was a, years ago. And they said to me something to the effect of, can you imagine if in every third grade class across the country, they taught a compassion class? Yeah. You know, so we have math, we have English, you have whatever you're learning in third grade, but you also have a compassion class. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And I remember saying that to someone once and they were like, yeah, but you know, that's the stuff that's taught at home or supposed to be taught at home. And prior to all of this, the writing and speaking, I was working for about five or six years uh, in elementary schools as assistant site director to a before and after enrichment program. Adore kids. I loved working with them. But it was in what's called, and I don't like this term, but it was called at risk with at risk, you know, youth and uh, low income, a lot of single parent families. Um, and a lot of these kids were not getting that. I was also doing one on one youth mentoring at the time through the Department of Children and Family Services. So I was working with kids ages five to 18. And, you know, I would go into the homes and I would see, you know, what was going on. And I knew that they were not being taught things like compassion or loving kindness, you know, or just gentleness towards themselves, let alone towards others. So, you know, that that's the first thing that comes to mind, you know, in regards to digging a little deeper is that I, I really think it, it starts early with us. It's not that it's never too late because as I was saying earlier, when I was younger, I had little to no self-love. I had no self-compassion when I was, um, after the relapse stuff and I, you know, got back out on my own and was living in apartments, even though I knew about recovery, I was still struggling with this self-love and self-loathing. And I couldn't have mirrors in my apartment because I couldn't stand to see my reflection. Um, if I was walking into a store that had like a glass door where I knew I could see my reflection, I would look away. That's just how deeply self-rooted it was. Now, I know that's not the case for everyone, but to a certain extent, I think most people struggle with that. And then that, that comes out in the way we deal with others. You know, if, if we're not happy with ourselves or loving of ourselves or even, you know, having a little bit of compassion towards ourselves, then, you know, it's hard to extend that to other people. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. And at least, you know, what I'm sharing is from my own direct experience, at least. So I'm not saying any of this is a definitive truth. It's just my experience of it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think you, you, point to something really profound in in that you know in our culture there are so few culturally normalized ways of like you said dealing with our own pain and and then and and of course then then we see that these spiritual practices seem to be 
in a lot of instances, filling that void in the culture. But it's yeah. still, you know, it's still a minority. It's still a minority um, uh, path for most right. people. And so, what, but what we do have is we have, you know, no kind of culturally normalized ways of dealing with pain. And then, and then the pain gets so severe that then we have the medical establishment with which pathologizes pain. You know, so then, which is another kind of, you know, other side of the sword. You know, so it's interesting. Yeah. It's really, uh, and so I love that you brought that up because I do think that's such a uh, it, the the school system, especially like ethics, you know, both self and other ethics, you know, in terms of right. of of dealing with um, self care and and compassion and all these different things that that you know you and others are working to to support. So, so thank you for bringing that up. You know, I yeah. want to have a question about. I, I want to ask you a question about um, tradition because I know you you talk a lot. You you no, take a you nod to a number of different traditions in your books and in your work and in your and your in your talks and speeches. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, what traditions have been the most formative for you? I know you have a more fluid approach to tradition mm -hmm. in general, and I want to talk a little bit about maybe why that is and why that works for you. But just to to give a nod, I guess, to those traditions, what have been the most kind of profound and, inf and yeah. informative ones? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. Um, you know, I know some, some people say, like, you need to pick one tradition and stick with that. Mm -hmm. Other people say, no, it's, it's great to, you know, learn from all traditions. And, and I understand both sides of that conversation. Ultimately, I believe it comes down to each person again, you know, it's all sub subjective, you know, or uh, yeah, subjective experience. So for me, um, yeah, I don't label myself anything. I mean, the closest label I think you could attach to it would be interfaith. Um, but I definitely have a deep reverence for the teachings of Buddhism. Um, particularly the Mahayana tradition. I mean, I love Noah and his work and, and, and Jack and the Theravadan tradition, but, um, I'm really a big fan of, of people like Thich Nhat Hanh, who is Zen, but you know, that would fall more in the Mahayana or Pema Chodron and Chogya Trungpa Rinpoche and, uh, Nagarjuna, um, you know, teachers like that from that tradition, uh, Sharon Salzberg, of course. Uh, but then, you know, Ram Das has been one of the, if not, I'd say Ram Das and Ken Wilber have been the two biggest teachers and Ram Das would fall into the, uh, Hinduism category though. You know, he, when you listen to him talk, he's quoting mystics from all traditions and, mm. and, and he and Ken Wilber were the two earliest people that I, aside from Eckhart Tolle, who also, you know, quotes Jesus and Buddha and Lao Tzu and others quite often. I remember really appreciating them for that because even prior to that, when I was in high school, I remember it was kind of like either you were into metal or you were into <laughs> hip hop or you were a, a band geek or a gearhead. And I mean, I, I guess I fell into the skateboarding punk rock alternative thing, but I loved metal and I loved hip hop and, and I, you know, I played soccer and hockey and I, you know, I've always just been very eclectic and I didn't like being pigeonholed into anything. So I've seen how that's carried over into my own spiritual path. And, uh, um, so yeah, just to go back, um, you know, so, so Hinduism and, and Vedanta and even really the mystic core of, of, of any of the traditions, um, I love the teachings of Meister Eckhart or St. John of the Cross from Christianity, mm. um, even A Course in Miracles. You know, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical on channeled material, but that's supposedly a channeled book of, of Christ Jesus. And, you know, I've read that and um, it resonates so deeply in my heart when I read those words. So regardless of who the author is, um, I find there's a lot of truth. 
But then even outside of that, as, as I've written in everything mine, like I look at people like Charles Bukowski or Hunter Thompson as spiritual teachers, you know, I'm sure they would never, ever consider themselves as such. And, and that's great. But to me, you know, there's this raw authenticity in the writing and it makes me feel, you know, and, and it, it makes me, or it, it encourages me to explore myself, some of their writing. So to me, that's very spiritual. So the, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with these two that you mentioned. So sure. will, you, will you just, are these writers? Yeah. They, they, that you let, they, I, yeah, they both passed on, but you know, Charles Bukowski was this like raging alcoholic writer who was absolutely brilliant and raw and definitely completely politically inc- uh, incorrect. But I mean, just in, incredibly, incredibly intelligent. Um, one of the most brilliant writers I've ever read, Hunter S. Thompson, um, if you've ever heard of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, yes, yeah. he's the author of that. Oh, okay. uh, so, you know, he he had this style of writing called gonzo journalism, which was just basically batshit crazy writing. I mean, he was always on drugs and alcohol, but again, another brilliant writer. He wrote for Rolling Stone towards the end of his career, um, you know, in other places, but uh, just good writing is good writing to me. Yeah. So, but that's very interesting. So how do you extract then the spiritual teachings from, from these writers? Because I think that's a, it's a beautiful practice to, to invite people to look at, you know, various writers or, or teachers of all sorts, you know, just because they fall outside the traditional categories of spirituality, doesn't mean that there isn't a spiritual teaching there. So in your experience, then what is, you know, what is the method, so to speak, of kind of extracting the, the spiritual truths from, from things that don't, on the surface, appear as spiritual teachings? Sure. That's a great question. That's why I titled my second book, Everything Mind, because to me, it's it's all spiritual. Um, to me, spirit, which is just another way of saying the unmanifest or energy, you know, that pure potentiality before yeah. it becomes the solid world that we're seeing, whether it's you, me, the computers, I mean, literally anything that takes form. So it's before it's form, it's that formlessness. I call it spirit people. You can God, whatever Buddha mind, it doesn't matter. Um, but, but even in physics, you know, there's a pure potential energy, you know, and there's an intelligence in that energy. So to me, keeping, uh, keeping that understanding, you know, close to my heart and mind that makes anything potentially a spiritual teaching. So as I'm reading, you know, someone like Bukowski or Thompson, if it, if it guides me, if something they write guides me back into myself and to explore a little bit deeper, that's, that's very spiritual to me, you know, or, or I write about in everything mind going to, I think I write both about a Slayer concert and a Motorhead (laughs) concert and having very real spiritual experiences at them because I'm open to that. You know, a, a lot of people, tend to compartmentalize spirituality, something that happens when they're formally sitting on their Zafu in meditation or taking their yoga class. And of course, that is absolutely part of it. That's part of it still for me in my life. And um, so and that's great because that helps ground us in our practice. But what about when we get up off that cushion and then we go out in, into the quote unquote real world? You know, what's going on when we're out there? And to me, that's just as much a part of the spiritual path and practice as when we're sitting there or when we're at a workshop or a talk or a, a conference or listening to a podcast like this. It's all, as Ram Dass would say, it's all grist for the mill. Mm. That doesn't mean it's all, you know, and then in parentheses, spiritual grist for the mill, spiritual stuff. It's all, all of life is, is our teacher. It's all 
grist for the mill, but are we open to it? You know, are we willing to approach life in such a way as that? I remember I interviewed Andrew Harvey, who is a brilliant scholar of mystics, whether uh, they're Christian or from Sufism, um, you know, just all, all different mystics. And I remember he was telling, yeah, he's, he's a a great, great teacher, Andrew Harvey, Mm -hmm. many wonderful books. And I was speaking with him once and he was talking about a very similar thing. And he said, uh, one of his many trips to India, you know, there's many holy men all over the place. And he remembers seeing one sitting on a pile of garbage. You know, there was literal shit in there and this man was just on top of it meditating. And he said, was that any less of a spiritual experience than the person who's in the, the holy building? Absolutely not. You know, it, it all is what it is. It's just where are we at with it? And that's there's a teaching called panentheism um, that says the same thing. It's it, that's from a, a, a Christian lens, but it would say God is in all things, yeah. just as all things are in, are in God. Yeah. Or if we looked at it from a Buddhist perspective, form uh, emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. You know, it's it's all. It, it, you know, there's two sides of it, but it's completely intertwined. So. Hinduism might say unmanifest and manifest, you know, it's all, uh, it's all there. It reminds, yeah, it reminds me a lot of the Shaiva Tantra tradition as well, where everything is Shiva, you know, that the the key, you know, the key moment of awakening is when you recognize that everything is that, you know, supreme consciousness in, in manifestation. Um, I, I'm really uh, glad that you, you know, said, uh, said that, and it's, it's nice to talk about this idea of everything mind, uh, such a beautiful way to think about it, because it reminds me actually, when you were talking about something that my, my teacher said this past weekend, where, where he was describing someone who was doing their spiritual practice, but they were saying that they could only meditate in their gazebo, (laughs) that the only place they could actually make their, you know, their, the only place their meditation could really be fruitful is in their gazebo. And he's like, you know, when you, when you, when you pigeonhole your practice, practice in that way, you've made it too precious. You know, yes. if you're, if you're, if your spiritual practice has become so precious that it requires some kind of special sort of, you know, setup in order for it to be fruitful, then you've lost something. Right. And, and, yeah. and then on the, on the one side, you have the preciousness of your practice. And on the other side, you have, you have the kind of, you know, material world and all its junk. And so what I see you saying is really that we're making it all precious. We're, we're, we're taking that preciousness out of any specific um, idea and really making it, you know, I guess non-dual would be one of the, the kind of popular words that we use to describe yeah. this ability to see that, uh, that singular divinity in all things. Yeah. And, and to me, everything is sacred and nothing is sacred. And I try to hold both just because you don't want to make any material thing too special, too right. important. It's all temporary. It's all fleeting, mm. you know, it, whether it's from our emotions to our thoughts to, I mean, literally any physical thing, it's all going to pass at some point. Mm. So it's great. Find the inspiration, find the teaching, find the lesson, find the inspiration, you know, whatever, but also keep in mind that it's, it's not permanent. Mm. You know, it's all impermanent. The only thing that's not impermanent is again, what, it goes by many names in many traditions, Buddha mind, Christ consciousness, um, you know, Brahman, whatever, whatever you care to call it, you know, this underlying awareness, witnessing awareness, loving awareness that is underlying all of our experience all of the time. It was here before we were born. It'll be here before we were gone. You know, it's kind of like things manifest in Hinduism. It's the Leela. It's the dance. We come play for a little while Mm -hmm. and then we, we go back home. Mm -hmm. 
and then maybe we come back or maybe we end up somewhere else that i don't know i'm I'm, it's all conjecture to be honest at that point i know it really is it really is i'm not i mean i love the idea of reincarnation but i just don't know it's like one of those things it's like we'll have to wait and see (laughs) right yeah my my heart kind of feels it and my mind wants to be like yeah you're you're good don't worry but that's like the ego like impermanent fear and well, yeah. exactly. It's like you never it, because it seems like if reincarnation was to exist it for me, it couldn't exist in the kind of like pod like ego, because if we're meant to sort of, you know, realize the temporariness of our ego, then it's and most often I feel like that the 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 idea around reincarnation is is generally positive is this idea of like the ego leaves the body and then it sort of transplants itself in some other body. But then it's just like a fear of ego death that's really behind this desire for reincarnation. So it seems like it would be much more about just kind of like the fluidity of energy or something like that. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole nother yeah, story. Right right? <laughs> but I want to, so actually I want to um, uh, ask you about, you know, something we were touching upon a moment ago, which is, you know, with, with your practice, it's been a more fluid, um, you know, traditions inform you, but you're not, you know, sitting, you know, sitting with any particular tradition necessarily. Um, and, and, and you talk about it in one of your books as, as a fluid spirituality. And so you might practice one particular practice for six months to a year, and then it might shift. And, and so I want to ask a question about that because, I want to ask, you know, what are the criteria by which you determine whether or not a particular practice is right for you at a given moment? And the reason why I'm asking that is because I feel like there's this pervasive idea that the spiritual practice is supposed to make you feel good. And so the, this this chasing of things that makes you feel good all the time, you know, I, I should be in Ananda, I should be blissed out, and, you know, therefore... And so then it becomes this kind of, like, weird drug, almost. Your spiritual practice becomes a kind of form of escapism. And and, and it seems to be that one of the... One of the um, one of the maybe good things we might say about tradition is that it says you stick with it, you know, whether or not, you know, on the surface level of reality, you have a kind of quote unquote good or a quote unquote bad meditation. So, so without the kind of support of a tradition to just keep you on that trajectory, what do we rely upon as, as those um, criteria, I guess, that would help us determine whether or not this is the right practice? Right. So, I, you know, there's, of course, no formal criteria. This right. is just me talking from my own experience. Um, one thing I'm very I try to be very clear on in my books and my talks is, first of all, recognizing your own truth mm-hmm. and understanding that and not and also understanding that spirituality is not all rainbows and unicorns. You know, I, I in both my books, I make it very clear, like it is going to, like I said already earlier, if you're really sincere about it, it's going to bring up a lot of shit. It's going to be very unpleasant. Um, Chogyam Trungpa at one point said, it's best not to take up a spiritual practice because if you're really doing it, it is going to ask absolutely everything of you. And that has definitely been my experience thus far. And at times, I mean, the thought has crossed my mind where it's like, God damn, I wish I never stepped on this path because I see how it could be easier to just be so blissfully unaware. Now, realistically, no, I'm grateful that I stepped on it and I'm grateful that I have that awareness. Um, But to go back to the question, uh, it's to me, it's never, ever about chasing bliss. It's never about, I mean, I know Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. So of course, (laughs) do what makes you happy, but don't, but don't constantly just go for that 
you know, learn to sit with being uncomfortable, learn to have compassion for difficult times when they arise. And part of that might be if it's too much, you might need to turn on the TV. You might need to like turn on the radio and walk away from it a little while. I know it's taught, you know, you need to like sit through it and spiritual warriors and this and that. Mm. I say bullshit to that. That's me. I say sometimes the most compassionate thing we can do is walk away from the overwhelming feelings and emotions and give a little space from them and then come back when we have time. But to me, really the, the two criteria is one, learning to discern what is really in our hearts. You know, the ego might be saying one thing because like you said, it does want to chase happiness and maybe I'm not finding the happiness with this path. So, you know, really learning to discern, is that what my ego and mind is saying or is it really what my heart is compelling me to do? And the second part of that is having some kind of community and teacher, you know, so there is someone to mirror back to. So it's not just us um, lone wolfing it, you know, like, because if that's the case, I know, especially for myself, you know, like my mind still to this day will go into some fucked up places. I, I'm sorry if I, I don't no, know. No, you're allowed. You're, it is okay. permitted Worth on it. shitheads. Good. Oh yeah. I should. <laughs> Great name, by the way. Love you're that. Well. Um, well. but, uh, yes. Yeah, so anyways, um, that, that's it to me. Those are the two main things. I'm, I'm sure if I sat down and, and after this interview, I'll think of like 10 other key points you should really check in on. But no, I think it, it could be as simple as discernment of what your heart is really telling you. And what helps with that is having that community and or teacher to share that with. And if it is, if it's a really good teacher, you know, they're never going to try to get you to stay and, you know, like, no, you, you know, abide by everything I'm saying. And, you know, that's just like an ego. I'm sure you, as many people listening, have heard tons of horror stories of, you know, uh, people taking advantage of their place and power and, uh, ugh, it can be very ugly, but yeah. you know, there are a lot of really good teachers out there that, you know, will, uh, will under, I think, it can intuitively and with experience know where their students at and really help guide them and, and help them on their path. I mean, that's been my experience. I've been very lucky for the most part with that. Yeah, that's a really, I think that's a wonderful answer. Discernment and community. Um, yeah. and, and what that seems to also be, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about this. It seems like then there's a resistance in that answer to the idea that we can do it all ourselves. And, you know, you see this a lot. It's like, I don't need a teacher. The true teacher is inside, which, mm -hmm. you know, is true from a certain perspective. I get it. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think that's the discernment, right? You, the yeah. teacher inside is really the ultimate one who discerns whether it's bullshit or not. Right. Um, but, you know, do you want to just talk a little bit about that on the difference between, you know, having a teacher and and the inner teacher? Yeah. So, I mean, I've gone periods where I didn't have uh, a formal teacher in my life and I've kind of, you know, been on my own and studied. And to a certain extent, I think that can be OK. Again, now this is just me. So I'm not yeah. trying to say what is right and what is wrong. Totally. Um, but in my experience, you know, I've uh, I've had to wander a bit and kind of do that self-exploration. Um, however, I that's also led me down some dark roads because, again, I have that addiction thing. And, and when I was kind of off of my own without community, without someone else, um, being introverted on top of having the addiction, I would end up isolating and then depression would start setting in. And then inevitably it was back to drugs and alcohol to relieve that loneliness, that depression, that emptiness. Um, so, you know, for anyone listening that may happen to have that, um, have the addiction thing as well, I, I just 
caution you if you if you do kind of go off on your own for a bit to please be very aware and mindful of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's really something to be said for the value of the light bearers, you know, the people who have walked the path before us who have had the experiences as long as we're not putting them on pedestals because we have to remember that they're human beings too. And that in and of itself means you're They're going to be flawed as well. You know, there's with the exception of maybe Christ and Buddha and I don't know, there's probably one or two, maybe people on earth right now. Yeah. But with the exception of those, we're human and we're all flawed and we're all going to fuck up. And, you know, that's why it's so important for me to be transparent and never, ever present myself in a way that is anything that I'm not, you know, and, and I, and because a lot of teachers today do do that and, and it's tough for their students because then it's setting these expectations. And I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with at conferences or received emails from who put such pressure on themselves because they're trying to emulate this teacher, you know, who's presenting themselves in such a, a way of perfection, you know, and, and bullshit, bullshit. You're a human being. And I've seen some of these teachers, I won't name names, but at a lot of these big conferences, I've seen them on the stage and then I've seen them behind the stage and it is night and day. Yes. It's very unfortunate. It's not always the case. I want to be clear. There are some great teachers out there that are well known that really have the integrity and, and, um, walk their talk, but there's also a lot that don't. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate and, and it's you can even hear it in just the way that they speak. There's this like spiritual speak, like spiritual yes. kind of speaking that 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 it, to me, it feels very fake. But obviously, you know, a lot of people are buying it. And um, mm. and speaking of buying, you know, I guess this is a, I have this sort of as a question for later, but we might as well talk about it now. Um, this the consumer culture around spiritual teachers is obviously diversifying and I mean you know spirituality itself is a multi-million billion <laughs> perhaps I think actually now dollar industry yeah. and so you know and 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 you um you uh, label might be the wrong word but you you know you put yourself forward as the no bullshit guy and so and so just to continue this conversation about what the bullshit is do you, if you want to kind of I think we're already talking about it but do you want to describe a little bit about you know, when you say you're no bullshit, then what is the bullshit that we're seeing um, in, in this kind of like spiritual marketplace? Yeah, it's funny. The bullshit thing actually was my first publisher. Uh, they they <laughs> subtitled that, not me. And I was surprised oh. because they, they threw that in there. Um, but it, it was apropos, I think, you know, so I wouldn't I wouldn't label myself no bullshit because right. I'll be honest, man, I like. I might say something one day and then go out and do the complete opposite so you're a day saying later. You're full of shit as well. <laughs> I, who isn't? Yeah. I try, but I will tell you this: I try not to be like yeah. you know. When I talk to you, I'm speaking my truth in that moment. But as I, I say in the books, you know, that's why staying open and fluid is so important to me because who knows what our honest to goodness experience of truth is going to be day to day, let alone hour to hour. You know, the only constant is change. So who knows? But as far as the bullshit, I mean, man, it's just to me, and I know it's, it sounds judgmental and I'll own it. Part of it is judgmental, but part of it is very sincere, you know, from my heart when I say this is that we do live in a, in a society where it's kind of mass market, watered down consumerism. And that, of course, is not just in the spiritual circles. It's all over the place. You look at all the fast food restaurants and I mean, it's just, you know, instant gratification. And that absolutely has found its way into spirituality. It's not that it's new. You go back to the New Age movement in the 70s and it was rampant there as well. So, again, it's nothing new. It's just kind of grown and gotten bigger. Um 
Trungpa Rinpoche wrote one of my favorite books called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And that's a book I could read it tomorrow. And I I'll think I've made spiritual progress. And I read that book and it makes me feel this big, you know, Mm -hmm. puts me right back in check. Because to a certain extent, we all go through that phase of spiritual materialism, I believe, or at least most of us. Um, you know, we, we, we dress the part, we talk the part, we get really excited because it is an exciting thing. Like it's a new, new endeavor, you know, it's almost like a new boyfriend or girlfriend for a lot of us. And, and I know I went through it for sure. Um, but then for me, I had to recognize at some point, am I actually like doing the inner work? Um, often the example of peeling away an onion is used, you know, like peeling away these layers versus, spiritual materialism where we're adding on layers. We're spiritualizing our ego. We're just, we're taking the ego and giving it a new identification and we're dressing it up in spiritual garb. And, um, and again, you know, that's okay. It's, it's part of the path for many of us. And I, and again, I went through it and, and I still wear malas and stuff, but like Mm -hmm. I use them in, in, in a way that really like is a very real way. I don't just wear them anymore. I actually use them. I actually, you know, do mantra practice and, and don't have to tell the whole world that, well, I write about it. So I guess I'm telling people, but we all know, Chris, we're yes, aware. Y'all. <laughs> so just as everyone knows No, but I mean, that's the thing is, you know, I guess, you know, uh, for me, I had to learn to be able to laugh at myself on the path, not take it too seriously. Um, in the beginning, you know, I was trying to meditate and, and I was very self judgy about like meditating because I couldn't quiet my mind. And then, you know, here I am 15 years later and on a good day, the mind might quiet down on a, on a not so good day. I might sit there for however long and the mind will just be going the whole time yeah. and that's okay. You know, it's, that's why they call it a practice. It's just part of the path. So, you know, I, I guess just to, to anyone who's on the path or newer to the path, I would just say, you know, try sooner than later to go back to that discernment thing. You know, like, look, at does this really honestly resonate with you? And if it does, cool. And maybe some of that watered down stuff is great for getting people into the spiritual door and and uh, and then maybe they'll find their way deeper into the path and practice from there. Everyone has their own, you know, their own path. The one last thing I will say to that, the only caveat is I was talking to this guy, Jeff Brown, who's a, a wonderful writer. And uh, he he calls this new age kind of thing, he calls it the new cage movement. He, you know, I think I'll say some stuff about it. He, you know, he has no qualms about like calling it on his shit. And he made a really good point that, um, and I know this is an extreme example, but he had a very dear friend to him that got involved in the really... Um, popular spirituality. Again, I'm not going to name names. There's a publisher out there. It's probably the biggest publisher and they've done some great work, but they've also published a lot of, in my opinion, it's just that a lot of garbage. Um, and they do conferences and you know, it's a whole lot of, uh, I'm just going to, you got to say it. It's just a lot of fucking fluff and money and, um, prettiness and uh rainbows and unicorns and any really don't want to say what organization this is no i I don't like to name names man i i think anyone that like knows anything about spirituality would you know it's not it wouldn't take them long to figure it out and i but i have friends that like you know work with them and and stuff and and again it's not to say that it's all bad um because they've done some great work and i have some stuff i'm sure in my apartment from them but uh, over the course of time, as business has become booming for spirituality, you know, this per- particular organization definitely followed that trend. Um, 
But anyway, so back to that story, this Jeff Brown had a friend and uh, this person was very much into that form of spirituality. And, and I've heard people reference it in a couple of ways. Uh, a Buddhist teacher once called it McMindfulness, you know, like it's a real, again, instant gratification kind of, it doesn't really ask very much of you. So you're not really going very deeply. Another person has called it like a bandaid instead of like healing the wound, you're just putting a little bandaid on it. And with this person and his friend, they were, they were involved in this kind of, you know, light and fluffy spirituality for two or three years. And they had a lot of really deep wounds and, and trauma that, that they needed to work through, but they believed that these, you know, what these teachers were saying, and they really believed this was going to heal them. And this woman ended up committing suicide because oh. it didn't. Yeah. And, and again, now I know that that's an extreme example. I know that that's not happening on a daily basis, but that I'm sure that there are other people that are looking there for answers that have similar stories and maybe they're not committing suicide, but you know, maybe it's bringing them further into their depression. Maybe, you know, they're they're Maybe they'll just turn away from spirituality because, you know, that's their experience of it. And to them, it ends up being bullshit. Um, then again, maybe some people will find the answers they're looking for there. So I don't mean to just completely throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not saying there's no value. It just comes back to each person and that discernment thing, which is huge. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that what you're saying is really is really on point, because um, one thing that my teacher often says is that or, or sort of uh, indirectly says, I don't know if he said this specifically, but that the, that this kind of work is like a huge responsibility. And 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 what we're seeing is really a lot like a, a whole um, range of new teachers that really don't have a kind of lifetime even of self-practice behind mm -hmm. them sort of branding themselves as this, you know, as this light and fluffy guru. And, and so, and, and yet the people that are turning towards these types of teachers, like you say, have profound wounds and traumas. And so they're taking into their unprepared hands, you know, a, a whole host. And, and, and we're seeing this a lot. And you don't see this in, you know, for example, if someone becomes a therapist, like they're, mm -hmm. they're talking from a, a place of they have an education and setting aside whether or not all therapists are really prepared to, to be a therapist is another question. Or if all, you know, traditions of training are, are legit is another thing. But, but, but this absence of, of kind of rigorous, uh, training or or preparation for these people who are then taking on the responsibilities of of having these pe people as students i guess is like it, it seems to be an issue it it is i agree and that's why you've heard me a number of times already and uh say this and and i'll you know i'll probably say a number more times but i it's so important for me to speak from this is my direct experience yeah. you know i am not claiming to be an expert a professional and this or that and you know i make that very clear in my books like this is my lived experience. This is the truth is I have experienced it. I hope that this will help many people listening or reading the books avoid so many of the pitfalls that I went down, which is why I always include numerous practices, you know, that come from these great traditions that have helped me in my healing journey that the forthcoming book at the end of every chapter has a practice, um, you know, that again has made a big impact in my life and others that I know as well from different traditions. But, you know, I'm not a professional therapist and I have no qualms saying that I am a flawed human being who fucks up on a daily basis. It's very important for me to be very honest with people about that. Mm -hmm. However, I have come a really long way <laughs> from 
living in a place where I would cut and not have mirrors and, you know, and like I literally hated myself, weighed almost 300 pounds to someone who is not happy all the time, but is in a place where I'm happier at least half the time, if not more than that. And, and when I'm not happy, it doesn't mean I'm depressed. It just means, you know, life is life. Sometimes shit happens and, and okay, I can be there with it. And, um, and for me, that's huge, you know, like that, that shift is amazing, you know, because I, I'm, it's not lost on me that I am alive today. You know, there have been no shortage of times I, I used to say could have, uh, or should have is what I, I used to say, but could have died. You know, I mean, again, I've been in the emergency room number of times and tried to take my own life a few times, but to go from that to this place is no small thing. And I think sometimes, um, people who are getting professional help and I, and I strongly do recommend that, you know, for people that need it, I would never say don't get professional help, but sometimes I also need to hear someone that's like walked through the shit and is still on a daily, not a daily basis, but you know, still recognizes that there is shit that's happening and they still deal with shit in their life. And I still, I, I deal with shit in my life. I, and all these teachers do too, whether they're admitting it or not. But, um, Anyways, that's that's kind of the role I try to facilitate. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think that's a really important role to to be played because you are essentially offering people a mirror of their own, of of experiences that a lot of people have, but which aren't necessarily shared in in the context of spirit talk. <laughs> you right. Know, somebody yeah. who's really dealing with with addiction and struggle and pain, and 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 so it's really more, you know. Uh, it's your, your, what you're offering is almost like something, which is why I thought it was interesting that we're talking about literature before because, or writers is because it seems like the beauty of literature is that you, the, it allows you kind of a doorway into your own experience that is really different from this sort of like high minded spiritual talk. And so with you sharing your story, it really serves as that kind of illuminating moment of that I think literature offers where you can relate to the character, you can relate to the human all too human experience of moving through pain. And then, Mm. and then from that acknowledgement, people can be inspired to, to, you know, move in whatever direction. So I think it's, yeah. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for saying that Jacob. And, and you know, the other side of that, which I think I did a little more in everything mind and I did in, in indie spirituals, my first book too, uh, was besides just my experience, cause I don't want to make it just about me. Totally, I mean, yeah. I, I use myself kind of, I throw myself under the bus cause I have no problem. Like, you know, just look, I'm fucked up. Yourself. But, <laughs> yes. So that's part of it. But then the other part is, you know, these wisdom traditions have been and the practices from them yeah. have been what have changed my life. So I try to, you know, offer those in a way that makes it accessible totally. for, I, you know, the younger generation of seekers, but really anyone. Um, but, but my passion is kind of the, the skeptical or cynical people that might look at it, especially see the, the more fluffy stuff and be yes. like, yeah, that doesn't resonate for me. And I understand cause it doesn't for me either. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there that are looking for something more, but, but need something that feels a bit more raw or ragged totally. and I think I've got that <laughs> that end of things. I think covered, you've got that but... down, and I, and thank you because I really think that contingent of people, like the skeptical people who who don't just buy into the kind of you know typical narrative. I think it's really it's a huge swath of people, and when we don't speak yeah. to those people from that you know from the place of being kind of a skeptical, cynical person or having that temperament, you know, we're missing out on gosh 
how many millions of people are there like that in the world these days. I mean, I feel like so many millennials or whatever the whatever the age group is right below that. You know, I grew up, I feel like before I, before I sort of turned, I don't know, spiritual seems like, before I came to a, a life of practice, I feel like I was very cynical. And, and, and so, and I needed to kind of weed through a lot of my own critical analysis before I could kind of get to a place where I could relate to it all. You know, I couldn't, yeah. I hated hearing the word God for so long, you know, being raised in a Judeo-Christian household. I just, I couldn't stomach it, you know, and if I yeah, would yeah. have heard people talk, you know, just unpack this idea of God in a more interesting or nuanced way, maybe I could have gotten, gotten on board a little sooner, you know, so, so it's, yeah, it's an important, it's a really important, it's important work. It, uh, I just want to make one quick note before you, yeah. before you go on and, and just recognize or acknowledge also that I know I'm not the only one doing this. Like I have to give credit to people like Noah Levine mm-hmm. and Brad Warner who came before me, you know, they really inspired me. They're, they're also like old school punk rockers. They're both Buddhist teachers and, you know, I have no qualms calling themselves a Buddhist where I'm, you know, I don't call myself anything, but, um, so I'm not sitting here saying like, I'm the only one doing this. Like I've yeah. been very influenced by them. And, and so, and I share that because maybe someone's listening to this and they're, they think I'm full of shit. Cool, man. No hard feelings. Like I listen to people and think they're full of shit all the time. But again, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So if you're interested and and you kind of dig the idea of the more raw, authentic thing and I'm not doing it for you, check out Noah Levine. Check out Brad Warner. Check out Sam Harris um, who wrote a great book called Waking Up or Dan Harris who wrote a great book called 10% Happier. Um, you know, these there's a, a number of really great authors and, and teachers out there that are – um, saying things not exactly as I'm saying them because we're all individuals. In many cases, they're saying them much, much better than I could ever say them. You know, so fuck it. Maybe go read Sam Harris before you read me or Brad Warner anyways. But we can read uh, them at the same time. It's oh, there you go. Read them at the same time. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but just as long as the listeners are, you know, doing whatever they need to do to, to go deeper, to heal, to work on it, just find what works for you. That's that's Absolutely. my main point. Yeah. So now I want to ask this question. It was sort of um, one I had planned for the beginning, but it's I've, I, maybe I've been sort of tiptoeing around it because I don't. I don't. I want to be careful how I ask the question, um, and and maybe it's not even a big deal. But anyway, um, so you know, a lot of times when people are struggling with with addiction, and and um, you know, I spent myself three years not drinking or doing because I had a period where I had fallen into. I don't want to say. I, well, I had an addiction at the time, um, and and I had to me I had fallen into very bad habits, and so I needed to kind of take time to to cultivate new ones. Um, but you know, I went to I had been I was practicing yoga many years before this, so it wasn't like you know I found yoga after this or anything like that. Um, but you know, when that ha- when I um, when I stopped drinking, then of course I I went to AA and 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 um, and you're not supposed to talk about it because it's anonymous, but. <laughs> I'll but, talk about it. I don't give a great. shit. Great. <laughs> so, um, well, this is sort of why I wanted to be just careful because I don't know, you know, everybody has a kind of, some people have a very sort of precious, sensitive relationship with, with, sure. with this kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, for me, it absolutely did not work or function. I didn't like the idea of identifying myself as an addict or an alcoholic. That to me, that taking on of an identity, while I understood that it would be fruitful for some people, it it made no sense to me, you know, on a kind of intuitive level. And so I'm kind of wondering, you know, um, did, you know, the role that that played and then what does spiritual practice 
offer that either augments that or is it, is it an alternative answer to that? I mean, what is the kind of relationship between addiction and this kind of more traditional, you know, culturally um, instantiated mode of dealing with it that we call Alcoholics Anonymous and, and maybe another modality, which is, seems to be something more what you're about, which is really more, you know, finding a, finding practice that works for you. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So I have no beef with, with anything, you know, that serves someone. So I have certainly, um, done no shortage of AA meetings. I've done no shortage of NA meetings. Sorry, I'm breaking the anonymity rule. (laughs) It is, it is what it is. (laughs) But, um, I understand exactly what you're saying about identifying as an addict. Um, I know there's been a movement of people in the more formal 12 step fellowships that, uh, are choosing to call themselves, um, a person in recovery rather than addict. Um, you know, here's the thing as with even, I was saying with spirituality, people often ask me like, what, what do you recommend when it comes to recovery? And I don't advocate for any one path over another. People have found it in yoga. People have found it in AA or NA. Um, I personally, um, attend refuge recovery, which is Noah Levine's Buddhist approach. Um, and I really appreciate that because you're not identifying as anything. You say your name just to, to acknowledge, then you do 20 minutes of meditation, read a couple of pages out of the book, refuge recovery, and then have a discussion. Um, once in a while I'll still go to an AA meeting. They don't really resonate as much for me anymore, but I have tons of friends that are, you know, find their spirituality in AA. I'll tell you what though, even though I don't do those meetings, the Alcoholics Anonymous book, the, uh, text, I love that book. Like to me, there is something so deeply spiritual about that as well as, uh, Narcotics Anonymous's basic text. Um, I, I think there's a wealth of information for people who struggle with addictions in both of those books. Um, but so for, for a lot of people, there is no difference between that and spirituality. You know, they really like they, they say it's a spiritual program. Right. They also say what we suffer from as addicts is a spiritual malady, uh, mm-hmm. a spiritual uh, lack of spiritual connection. Um, Gabor Mate says uh, he says it's when you come into recovery, you're recovering something. What are you recovering? You're recovering yourself. You know, mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. however you recover that which you have lost along the way, that which mm-hmm. you've you know, uh, disowned or dissociated and suppressed because you didn't want it there. And again, whether it's through drugs or alcohol or a myriad you know, of other things, you know, I mean, yeah. we all do it in one way or another. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I don't, uh, again, just to go back, I don't advocate for one over the other. I, um, I get why people in those formal ones, um, identify as addicts, you know, they say it's, it's a step in, um, surrendering, you know, that part of yourself. So to that extent, I get it. But for me, just like, I don't like to call myself a Buddhist or, a you know, even spiritual, like that's just my own shit. I don't like labels. You know, I, it's just, that's just me, but cool, man. If someone wants to to go to a meeting and identify as an alcoholic, because that's what works for them. Mm. Godspeed. You know, if, if that is what is keeping them healing and and a productive member of society and helping others awesome but i mean you know i have this uh this friend his name is chris steadman and he's an atheist and he uh is the humanist chaplain down at yale and he wrote an incredible book called faithiest and i think i wrote wrote a little bit about this and everything mine but um he 
he, he's called faithiest. It's a derogatory term for atheists um, that work with quote unquote religious people. And he's like, fuck that. They're human beings. And what I want to do is serve humanity regardless of what we believe. So he, he wants to meet people in a, in a place where how can we come together and serve? And that to me is what it's all about. Like, so whatever your interests are, whatever regarding recovery or spirituality, great, but don't, don't let that close you off to people. Like if, if it's serving you to help yourself heal, but also help others, then right on, man, ride that train all the way home. That's what I would say. Yeah. I love what you said about, um, recovery as being, you're recovering yourself because, you know, you can take that then to, if you look at you know, much Indian spirituality, the idea of the self or the Atman as being what you're ultimately looking to, you know, self-realization. That's what you're looking to kind of encounter through practice. So it's interesting because what thinking about recovery is recovery of the self, then actually universes universalizes that to be, that's what we're all doing. And so it sort right. of becomes, you know, recovery or a program like AA or any or spiritual practice is really just of degree. You know, it's right. like, we're all trying to recover that self that's been lost or ha- that has been obscured by the ephemeral, suf- you know, surface level of reality. And so we're all sort of on that trajectory to, to recovery. Um, so I, I just loved that kind of connection that I yeah. felt was there. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and that's a great comment. I mean, Atman is Brahman, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But at the same time, you know, lest we forget that it's in Buddhism, they would say that's the two truths. Like we were talking about earlier, the truth of the unmanifest mm-hmm. uh, and the truth of the manifest or form and formlessness. And so, you know, yes, we're, we're meditating because we're reconnecting with, with that, with, within our ego, physical body selves that is much deeper, you know, the, the true capital S self. Mm-hmm. But we also have to keep in mind that we are still human beings. To going back to Jeff Brown, who I mentioned earlier, I, he has a line I love. It, he said, yes, it's true that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, but it is just as true that we are human beings having a human experience. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people use spiritual practice as a way to try to negate that. So you know, people turn to drugs and alcohol or any of the other things I've mentioned a number of times now to escape, but people also turn to spiritual practice to escape. You know, I just, I want to transcend because I don't want to be in this body. Yeah. Hey, guess what, man? Unless like, again, you become that Buddha or Jesus, no matter what kind of non-dual experiences you have, mystical states you reach, you're still going to experience pain. You're still going to be in this human body. You're still, you're going to lose loved ones and that shit's going to hurt, you know? And if it doesn't, then, then I think you really need to check yourself. Like, uh, what kind of denial are you possibly in at that point? And spirituality is not about not feeling. If anything, you look at bodhisattvas, they cry on a daily basis, you know, mm. for the suffering of the world. It's you feel more deeply, but yeah. you're also able to smile more deeply, you know, so you feel things both good and bad more intensely. But you, again, you understand it's just part of this fleeting human experience. It's beautiful and it's tragic and joyful and terrifying and it's just it's all part of it no matter whether we like it or not it's all part of it Mm. Mm. wow that was beautiful what a beautiful note to end on Hey, all right. right. <laughs> George Costanza, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, it's been a real uh, delight to talk to you. Thanks for sharing, you know, a lot of really vulnerable stuff. I think I love these kinds of interviews where we get to talk about, you know, the the shitty aspects of life and how they really are uh, kind of the ground. You know, you mentioned in your book 
um, the famous comment, you know, no mud, lo- no lotus. And, and I right. feel like you really are, you really do highlight that in, in your work. So thank you for doing what you do. And, um, and just uh, as, uh, as an end note, do you want to share maybe, uh, I know you have a book coming out. If you want to mention where people can find that, if you have any workshops that you want to kind of um, point people to or anything else you have planned. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, um, I, the new book doesn't come out until spring of 2018, but it is okay. coming out with Simon & Schuster. It's called Dead Set on Living. Um, first two books are available anywhere books are sold. It, really, people could just check out my website, IndieSpirituals.com. I don't know when this is going to air, but if you're in the New York area, I'm doing a workshop with J.P. Sears, the ultra-spiritual guy who I yep. know you're going to be talking to soon, yep. uh, out at Cosm, which is Alex Gray's phenomenal um, place in Wappingers Falls, New York. Uh, in June, I'm teaching out at 1440 Multiversity in California with an incredible Sounds True author. Her name is Sarah Beek. You might mm. want to look into her. She's Yeah, she's, um, she's kind of like the female me, or I'm the male her, whatever you want to call it. But <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and then, I mean, I don't know, I have other workshops coming up this year too, but you could just check out, um, my website if you're interested and if not go fuck yourself. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't go fuck yourself. Oh, that was I awesome. had to throw that in there. <laughs> so good. All right, Chris, it's been a real pleasure. I uh, hope to speak to you soon and best of yeah. luck with everything. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your work, Jacob. It's, it's, uh, it's great. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.